I'll be reading chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And they said this, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you that your word is truth, that you are merciful, and that you are our only hope. There is no hope in a religious or a political party. There is no hope in our guns and tanks. Only you can help us. Only you can save us. Only you can help us walk in obedience. Thank you that you are sufficient for every difficulty in life. Encourage those here today who are just burdened down with excessive grief and those who might hear later. Pray that you'd help our pastor to speak the words that you have for us. Help us to have open minds and hearts. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Thank you for your love that sent Christ to die for us and raised him from the dead to give us new life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty. Uh, I apologize, I don't have a lot of jokes today. I don't have a lot of stories today. Today we're going to dig in. Today we're going to look at a text that is probably known by the world by one phrase, and it is, those without sin, you cast the first stone. And the world understands that philosophy. Uh, there is a problem, though. They really don't know the text very well. And actually, oftentimes, it's really misquoted, misrepresented. 
is almost like we should never condemn anybody for what they did wrong because you have it, and so there should never be any kind of judgment whatsoever ever from one person to another. And that's not what God was teaching in the text. Um, I've got to be real open and blunt today. Sin is still sin. And 1 Corinthians 5, you know, uh, correction was done in the church because of immorality and so forth. And, um, and rightfully so, the church had to bring uh, some discipline on that individual. Praise God, he got things right. Um, but that's not what this means. We've got to see what it means. We could actually spend three weeks on this text. I'm not going to do that. We could take the time to look at the three major characters, uh, which are the Pharisees uh, that are in this text. We could also see and take the time with a woman. And we could also take the time to talk about Jesus. And what we're going to do is bring all of these together. Um, the attention in this text by the men, Pharisees, are not about the women, or the woman, excuse me, taken in adultery. The attention in this text by the Pharisees is how are we going to stump Jesus? How are we going to be able to get him to be a heretic that would go against the law of Moses? And what's neat is Jesus takes the attention off of the Pharisees and puts it back on the woman at the end. So Jesus puts the emphasis on the sinner. How are we going to deal with this now? And so it's neat to see how this whole thing unfolds. The first part in verse number 1, we find that Jesus is by himself. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, not too far from Bethany. It's amazing. I'm all the commentaries I'm reading. They're like, oh yeah, he probably went to um, Lazarus' house with uh, you know Martha, Mary. We're, we're staying there. And that's not what it says, though. Uh, you'll remember Jesus didn't ho- have a home. He didn't have a place where he could go and say, hey, it's time to take the shower and you know get into my comfortable bed. He didn't have that. I'm sure he resided there, but. He's separating himself here at the mount as he oft did to get refreshed, to get ready. And that's something important for us. We don't know what the next day holds. Our job is to get ourselves spiritually prepared by being alone with our God to receive, if you will, that charge for the day. Because if we're not in the Word, if we're not ready, the world could give us a a cross fist and just knock us right out if we're not ready spiritually. Satan could be ready in our weakest moment when we're not prepared and Christ is taking this time and he's separated. And then early in the morning what he does is he comes into the temple and all the people came unto him. You just stop. There's a reason God put that in there. We say, well, of course so, but... But we got to see in chapter 7, building through, is they were doing their very best of finding out something that Jesus would say or do so that the priest could, high priest could bring him in and accuse him and put him worthy of death. And it's interesting, the previous chapter is that phrase where they, they, those who were with Jesus came back and they're like, well, where's Jesus? I mean, you were supposed to drag him with you so that we could 
kill him. And they said, but there's never been a man that spoke like this man. It's like we can't even find anything to accuse him. These are by words. And now they see the crowds gathering around him at the temple. They're the leaders. They're the teachers. They're the ones that exposit the word. They know it all. And why would the people gather themselves to him? Out of envy, Pilate knew that's why Jesus was drugged into this whole setting when he died. Envy was inside of their hearts. And oh my, do we have to be careful of that as religious people. And I use that word on purpose. When we're trying to perform and to do our acts, how quickly we can be jealous of one another, envious of one another, of gifts and abilities. Is it not from God? So all the people, they're coming to him. And he sat down and taught them. They were truth seekers. They wanted to know what was right. Understand what the law really meant. And so they're sitting under Jesus. Ears are open. I'm sure their mouths drop at times with how profound he taught them. And all don't we wish that we would have had a chance on this earth to sit under the master. To really be able to hear his words. How he explained. How he tied it together. So these are here. The Pharisees had failed. The priests had failed. Everybody was failing in finding something to bring against Jesus. So what they did was they thought, if we can't do it by his speech, why don't we bring an illustration, a visual, for all the people that are here listening to him to find out what's he going to do looking in the eyes of an individual who has done something worthy of death under the law, what is he, Jesus, going to do with this case? If we can trap him, if there's any way we could get Jesus going against the law of Moses, that's all we would need. Drag him into court, accuse him of the blasphemy, and sure enough, we could kill him. The physical as they, in verse number 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him, that is Jesus, a woman that was taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, this is what they said. I want to emphasize this is what they said. And they said unto him, Master, which is that uh, word of respect, so they didn't want to go in and say, hey, you blasphemer, we're going to... No, it's just like, oh, Master, you great, great teacher. This woman was taken in adultery. Now notice this, in the very act. Moses and the law commanded us, us, that such should be stoned. What do you say? Here she is. We have this woman, this young lady, I'm sure. And I'm sure her head is down looking at the ground right now. If you've noticed here, there is no explanation from her. There are no words of defense from this woman. She stands there at the mercy of Jesus. She stands there being condemned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These men could care less 
about her. There was no compassion. They're looking at the law, and they're looking at this woman, and saying, our law says, kill her. What do you say? Those who have studied this text out know that in the book of Exodus, in chapter number 20, and the verse is number 10, of the Ten Commandments, it says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery defined is an individual, and I looked into the Deuteronomy text, even betrothed uh, that they were engaged, meant to marry, she was never allowed then to have intimacy with another person, another man. And if so, they would both be taken and they would be stoned. If they were married and another man took this woman who was married to another man and had intimacy with her, uh, they would literally take them out and they would be stoned right there on the spot because it was known. It was, it was an act. Okay? And so, um, boy, if that were to happen in America... America's population would probably go down an awful lot. Now, Hollywood and everybody makes fun of it, and it's not even th- anything that's serious anymore. I guess we become numb uh, to its effects. God says in the Deuteronomy text that there was a polluting, that was something that was defiling the nation as a result of that, and uh, as it is ours. But if they were to look over to not only the Deuteronomy 22.22, those who were taking notes, if you were to look at Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, both of those texts, if you were to read them, you would find out that what they did wasn't fully what they were supposed to do. If she was caught in the very act, that meant there was somebody else there. Right? So where's the guy? Because in the text, it says they both are to come and stand before the priests for that very purpose of the judgment. And then, of course, the nation was to take them, and they were, in some texts, to be stoned. Others, it just says to die. But as was explained by these men, uh, there was supposed to be a stoning. What a horrible, horrible way to die. Uh you know, when I was a kid, you know, we'd pick up a rock and throw it at something, you know. You'd get this uni and you'd throw it. Uh, these weren't these little pebbles and goonies. These were rocks. These were rocks to be picked up, and as they would oftentimes put them in a pit, or they, the throwers would be above them, casting the stones down upon them so that with accuracy they could actually hit the target, and they're aiming for heads. The limbs are breaking. The bones are snapping with these rocks pounding on these people underneath until they knew that they were dead. What a brutal, brutal way. Boy, that's humbling today, isn't it? Yeah, it's really hard as I wrap my brain around this. And they who knew the Old Testament, wouldn't they be quickly flashing back to one of the very notable kings of Israel, number two man, David. He did this. Knowingly took the wife of a man 
who was defending the nation, fighting for God, fighting for the king, because that cry out, God save the king, which comes from the Scriptures. And that's what they wanted, to deliver the king, that he would be. And this very man that he was defending took his wife. She gets pregnant. You know the story. Not only does he commit the adultery, but ends up killing him, Uriah, and murder takes place. And you stop and you say, wow. I had a man come up to me not long ago. He said he was in a Bible study and he was talking about the Old Testament. And the guy that was in the study said, well, you look at the Old Testament, you never see grace. You can't find grace in the Old Testament. I said, you've got to be kidding me. This guy's actually read the Old Testament and doesn't see grace? I think Noah found it. I think. Uh, And a list of others. I'd see Ruth finding grace, and I could give you a list of others who found grace. But probably none greater than David. Not only grace, but mercy. Under the law, David should have been dethroned. He should have been taken out. And I didn't hear at least in the storyline, that Bathsheba was crying rape. Literally, they could have been both taken out and killed on the spot. Hides it. The prophet comes in, Nathaniel, and exposes it. And then, as we talked this year on Psalm 51, and there's forgiveness, restoration, and worship, and all that goes along with it. These men didn't bring that text up, did they? They're saying, Jesus, here's a woman. We should have had the man too. Sorry, we missed that one. And the law says this woman, because she was caught in the very act, ought to be drugged out right now and stoned. What do you say? What are you going to do with this one? Because now Jesus, as they're trying to do, is stick them in the middle. Because if he says, well, do nothing. There's others that have committed adultery. Then he would have gone against the law. And if he would have gone to the law, as he has been saying, love your enemies, teaching the Beatitudes, all of these things, taking, now follow me, the law to the next level. The teachings of the New Testament go beyond. The Old Testament, you got an enemy, you kill him. You know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. These are the bad guys, you kill them. And Jesus says, now you've got to pray for them. Now you love them. You do good things. You're traveling along, you put coals upon their head, you know, help them with life's journey. Give them water. Give them water, we want them to die. No, no, not now. So now, Jesus, if you go against the law and you teach, you know, uh, uh, now to go with the law and kill her, which side of the fence are you really on? And I'm sure over here, they are wringing their hands, gloating, ready to pounce. And there again, they could care less about the girl. They just wanted to get Jesus. They want to kill him. What's Jesus' reaction? Of course, verse 6, we have to read this, because God explains their hearts. Jesus, or excuse me, they said, tempting or putting him to an absolute test that they might have to accuse him. 
And here's what Jesus did. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not italicized. You'll notice that in the King James. So he starts to write on the ground. And as you know, later on, he wrote on the ground again. And the thought is, I'm just ignoring what you're saying. It's interesting, in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly. And there's other times you answer a fool according to his folly, unless he'll be lifted up with a prize. Or, yeah, yeah, you can't answer that one, can you? And there's other times you just don't go to their level. Jesus is teaching us there's a time to talk, and there's a time to be quiet and say nothing. That's the hardest one for us, by the way, to do, is to say nothing. Because we want to explain our whole case, point one, two, three, have it all alliterated, explain to the fullest, illustrated, and when it's done, they're still fighting with you. It didn't help. There's a time to say nothing. Silence sometimes is stronger than the words that you could come up with. No matter how vindictive, no matter how angry, no matter how animated you may say it, it wouldn't matter. Jesus did talk at times. When he went into the temple to cleanse it those two times, you're not going to make my father's house a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a place of prayer. Very clear. And angry. And was not in sin for that anger. He needed to cleanse the temple at the beginning and the end of his ministry to show he was sent from the Father and to show that religion had become a money-oriented thing. Instead of it being a place of worship, it's all about money. And you think that's happening to America while we're on the subject that we're all worried about the numbers of how many and how much. Folks, that's not what we're here for. If we're here for the numbers and for money, we're doing it all wrong. We need to join some of the cults, some of the main nine denominations. We just rack up the numbers. But folks... As Jesus is teaching us here, it is not about the numbers, it is about the individuals that need Jesus. That's what we have to remember, even as a church. He says, nothing. That wasn't good enough. So they kept asking him, continued asking him, what do you say? This is what the Bible says. This is what the law says. This is what Moses commanded us. Come on, give us an answer. You can't just sit there and say nothing. And they pressed him. And you can almost hear it getting louder. So everybody would be drawn in to this moment of victory for them. We have finally stumped him because he always had an answer. Oh, what do we do? Do we, do we pay our taxes or not? And Jesus quickly, well, whose picture's on here, boys? You know, it's not God's, it's Caesar's, so you render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's, and God what's his. Oh, that's that one. Resurrection, let's try the resurrection. 
You know, they go through that whole thing of, okay, this girl has multiple, you know, husbands on this earth, and they finally get into heaven, there's no children, you know, she's there in heaven, and she's got all these husbands. So which one's the husband? He's like, well, you don't really know the Bible too well, do you, boys? In heaven, there's neither marriage, nor is there giving in marriage in heaven. We become like the angels, we don't become angels, we become just like them. It's not about matrimony for us when it comes to heaven. So what was about? Oh! Let's try another one. I mean, they're getting the lawyers involved. They're getting everybody. And he always had an answer until this one. Nothing. Crickets. And they're thinking, surely we have him stumped. And they kept on pressing. You've got to have an answer. You can't sit there and say nothing. So what does he say simply? Not a Bible verse. He doesn't quote from Deuteronomy or Leviticus. He gives us the law of Christ, which is the eternal word of God. We are literally reading God's eternal word to us. And it says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. The first one. Others can then follow until your job is done that you can finally have this horrible person killed. That's all he says. And in verse 8 he says, For the second time he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. I'm sure you know this, but if not, we'll teach you this. In all of the Gospels, this is the only place that we ever find that Jesus wrote. This is it. This is the only time. Since Jesus Christ never wrote but once that we hear of in his whole life, since he did it only in the dust, since it was only to avoid condemning a sinner, and since he would not have that which he wrote so much as known. Let men learn from hence never to write, but when it is necessary or useful to do it with humility and modesty, to do it on a principle of charity, giving and helping. And how widely does Christ differ from men? He writes his divine thoughts in the dust, and they, that is the world, they have their cuts cut in marble, that is their words. They have their words engraved on brass. They want everybody to know for all of eternity on this earth what they said, what they wrote. How quickly those words and dust, how quickly as people walked over top of it, how quickly when the wind would pick up, all of those words that Jesus wrote in dust were gone. And then comes to that point, but what did he write? It's like it drives us crazy. What could he have penned down that brought such hush on these men? He could have been writing down maybe, yeah, Exodus 20 and verse number 10. But you forgot the text. You forgot the Deuteronomy 22.22 or the Leviticus 20 and verse number 10. He could have been giving those references down, but we don't have references at that time period. The Bible at this point wasn't divided into chapters. 
in verses like we have now. It was a book. Some have thought maybe, you know, he was even writing out these texts. You messed up the law. You didn't fulfill it. You're ready to condemn a person without a true biblical cause. Some have their wheels churning and thinking, probably he's writing out the individual's personal sins. Remember what you did last week? Eight o'clock, because he knows everything. (laughs) Remember what you did at that time? Remember how you deceived, lied? Remember this or that? But that's not recorded either. That'd be neat to think that's what he put down. But I think God on purpose kept it a secret. Because it's not important what he wrote. What is important is that the thoughts of Christ, whatever they be, for whatever generation, bring a conviction inside of the conscience of the individuals like none other before. There are innumerable books that are written about this one, Jesus Christ. Still the Bible, the bestseller. This, the Word of God. And Jesus writes something out as He has truly written from Genesis to the Revelation the very words. There is nothing that brings inside of the conscience a conviction like Jesus Christ. That's what we need to know. Not what it is He wrote, but the fact that what He wrote brought conviction. See it? Because if we were there, it would have been something else written. Right? This, what he begins to write down, verse number 9, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one. Interestingly, God includes this, beginning at the oldest, that is that we're standing there with this woman, ready to condemn her, they leave first, even unto the last. I'm assuming it went down by age to a point anyways. And then Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So this is really neat. So Jesus just looks at these guys. And so just scribble some words down. Some have thought maybe diagrams of something. But I would say most likely writing its words. And whatever he was writing, and look at these men, and writing down, interestingly, from the oldest. There is something about age. Remember us who are a little older. Remember when we were uh, 20-something, we knew everything? Remember how we had all of the answers for life? There is nothing. I love Dennis's way of saying it in our Sunday school class. It's like we knew the answers without even knowing what the questions were. We know it all, you know. And when we get older, the older we get, the more we realize that we don't know. 
And it's interesting, the maturity there of the men that knew he did it again. And all that he said was a simple phrase, not out of Leviticus, but if you, you, you don't have anything that could be condemned by all of the law. That's the key, is they are lining themselves up with the law. The one that is without sin, you cast it. And they knew the law. And they knew how they had messed it up. They may not have known James's principle that if you offend the law in one point, you're guilty of all of it, but they knew that they had done wrong, probably even based on the Ten Commandments. And from that conviction that the law gave to them, they realized, ah, and they walk away. What's interesting, too, is they didn't take the woman with them. Still, if their law and what they were saying was right, shouldn't they have taken her and, and continued to the, the high priest and said, here it is, and let's judge this woman, and let's kill her? They knew they had no right to condemn this woman. And they start walking away, the eldest. I can almost imagine the younger ones looking at the older guy, where, where are you? You're giving up already? We're staying here. Until conviction started coming inside. Being embarrassed, ashamed, for trying to test and to bring this one who is the law, who knows the law, to condemn them through the law. They finally all walk away. And Jesus stops and looks up and looks all around. And he looks at this woman, and now this is what he wanted. Let's have some one-on-one with the sinner. The one that everybody is accusing, the one that even the law has sentenced to say adultery is wrong. And he asks that question as he lifts up his eyes and he sees nobody except for the woman in verse 10. And he looks at her and says, Woman, where are those, thine accusers? And that's the question. And then he says, Has no man condemned thee? In other words, not one, not even the youngest, not the last one to leave, did they take her to have her stoned. And this is what she says. She says, No man. What's the next word? Lord. There was something happening inside of her in her knowledge of who Jesus is at this point. She acknowledges Him as the Master, Lord. And then Jesus says, of course, neither do I condemn thee. Now it's time for you to go and to sin no more. In that whole setting of people, if there was anyone worthy anyone that could have cast a stone at this woman, wouldn't it have been Jesus? Because our Savior, as we know, did not ever sin. While here on this earth, even though He is the Son of Man and was tempted in all points as you and I are, yet He is without sin. Never said it, never allowed it, It never happened in his members, his actions, his attitude, his teachings were always 100% correct and right. Not like your preacher. 
That's the one thing I fear one day, is standing before the Lord for all of my bloopers. All of the things that I explained wrongly in my mind and the way I see it. And the Lord's going, where did you get that in the Bible, Carl? But Jesus, not one time. Perfect. Absolute perfection. And if anybody could have stopped and said, now, woman, it is time for the condemnation. But he says just the opposite. Neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I condemn thee. Look back with me to just a few chapters back to John chapter 3. We know verse 16 real well, right? John 3.16, but I want to read the next verse. For God sent not His Son into the world to do what? To condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. You do need the next verse though with it. He that believeth on Him is what? Not condemned. So if there is a faith in Jesus Christ, as he says in John 5, also verse 24, he that hears my word and believes on him that has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come in to condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. But he that believeth not is condemned already. In other words, as you are seated, as, as we, we are standing here, if we have not believed in Jesus Christ, there is already a condemnation that is happening to me because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The name. Jesus. What does Jesus mean? He's the Savior. He died on the cross for our sin. He rose again. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So when as, as the approach of our God is this, I'm going to send my son, and as he is here, he's going to be generating life, not death. He's going to be generating no condemnation instead of condemnation. That's God's purpose. His plan is to save. But the only thing is that has the individual believed in Jesus Christ for that condemnation to go away. If we have believed in Jesus, God says the condemnation is gone. No death, no hell. Eternal death. And no eternal hell. Those who reject Jesus have to pay it on their own. The, the blood is not applied if it's not done by faith. Jesus came to take... That which the law was condemning. And to allow them, that, was, that individual that was condemned by the, world, the, the word, the Old Testament law, and God was willing to come in and take away the condemnation. And here the law was about to take a woman's life. And Jesus said, I will not condemn you. I will not stone you. I will not take your life. And there's one thing he says, stop it. Stop it. 
If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, new creature. That old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. It creates a new life, a new lifestyle for those who are in Christ. We have the resource now because we have the Spirit of God inside of us and we understand what is right and what is wrong through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. And God says, now I can give you a brand new life in me. And this woman who knew nothing seemingly but this lifestyle, he says, don't do it anymore. And they talk a little bit to us. I, you know, been pastoring for I don't know how many years, 23 years or something like that. And and we've, my wife and I have gone through a lot of counseling, met a lot of people, gone through a lot of things with people. And uh, I honestly understand when the world comes in and they stop and they say, you know, I've been having this affair for five years and, you know, I'm finally going to be getting over it and, you know, I just need some help. Give me some things. And it's like, you save? No. You get them saved and, and then things start changing and turning around for the individual. But can I talk to us? Because the easiest thing for us to do is condemn the world for their sin problems, isn't it? But the sad thing is it's happening inside the church. So rampant, so much. And um, we need to stop and look at our lives, Christians. And uh, we're not living out these TV series. Why swap? You know, that's not, uh, that's not what we're, we're in Christ now, folks. And the Lord is trying to say, you know, when, when this gal got saved, we, we don't know the rest of the story. We don't even know the woman's name. But I'm sure she's like, I could have been dead. And you gave me life. And now, Lord, I'm going to live for you now. Right there, by saying that, the hush in this auditorium, and it should be because all of us have gone through this with people. Maybe you've gone through it yourselves and we realize the seriousness of the subject of this sin that is talked about. It has crushed so many homes, so many children's lives have been hurt. Others have been hurt. Jesus wants to give us what's best for our life. He doesn't make laws because He's angry with us. He doesn't tell us to do or not to do things because he's just a big bully. He does things for what's best for us, just like a father does. As a pastor, let me be blunt with us. Are you in adultery? Right now, you have eyes for somebody at work that you are ready to have an affair with them? That you're rolling in your mind, I'm tired of this, what I have, and I'm just not happy and content anymore. I want something new. It's called coveting. And that's why God says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. It's not that hard, is it? You say, Pastor, why would you be so blunt? Because it's happening. It happens. 
And if we don't have a conviction in our conscience, then our conscience will justify anything we want. Conviction. Those who are about to do something wrong, these are unsaved people, and they knew they couldn't throw a stone at this girl. Conviction. Sometimes what I see as your pastor is sometimes a lack of conviction inside of the conscience. The ability to judge. There's, there's a person I met with about three months ago. Uh, the individual had been having an affair with a married man for five years. He is in another state. Will come here and stay through the week, and so you know she's sleeping with him through the week. And for all those years, he kept on saying, "Oh, one of these days, I'm going to leave my wife and I'm going to come be with you." Of course, the one he was with was his third wife, and he was getting ready to go with her to be number four. And she comes in my office and it's like, what do I do? What do you do? What, what do you, you really don't know what to do. And I, you know, there's times your pastor stops and, and goes like this. Really? You have no idea what to do. Really? <laughs> and I start walking through. What has he told you for the last years? Well, he's going to leave her and come with me. Has he done it? No. You believe him? Absolutely. Seriously. This is, this is and I wonder what's going on in the conscience right here. And I say, you really think he's going to leave? Yes. And when he comes to be with you, do you think he's going to stay with you the rest of your life? That he's going to love you and take care of you and be there for you? She, he, he will. And this lion man, who is an absolute womanizer, has this girl who is hurting, who is a single mom, he throws her 50 every once in a while to make her feel about it, good about herself, you know? Basically treating her like a harlot. And I said, you need to dump this guy yesterday. And you need to get to church, back to church. And you need to start praying and get things right with God. Her conscience was gnawing and gnawing and crying and weeping, knowing she's doing wrong but won't do the right because she felt trapped. There's no way else out there. How am I going to live? Everything is so negative. This is America, folks. This is not easy. But can we not allow... Now follow me. When the Spirit of God begins to convict our conscience of what is right or wrong, if we act upon it immediately, don't you think it would keep us from allowing ourselves to go down this slippery slope? That's a new slogan for the lately. Everybody's using the slippery slope, but I'll use it today too. You having fun? 
Adultery, Old Testament, New Testament, is wrong. And we could list a lot of other things. But this is the setting we're talking about today. And the conviction that should be happening inside of us. The conscience. Are we hardening? We're talking about a seared conscience. Are we just hardening our hearts so it's just like, I know what your Bible says, but... And we have to go on with what our feelings, our emotions, and our circumstances allow. And we almost take this button, this switch, this key inside and says, I'm not going to listen to my conscience. I don't want to go there with you, God, because I'm going to have to change things. And, and we just turn it off. And that's what, that's what hurts us. The best thing, young people, don't turn the conscious, conscience off when it comes to God speaking to you. Allow Him to give you the truth, what we need to know, what we need to do. Don't say no to the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit of God and what He's trying to do inside of the conscience. Allow Him to just flourish inside. You say, preacher, you've got it so made. All you do all week is sit and read your Bible and get messages ready. Okay. That'd be nice too, if it were true. But folks, I go through things. My wife goes through things. We go through the ups and downs of life. We all go through this. We are Christians. We have the human nature. We have all the same things that you have. And we all battle with things. But when your preacher shuts off the conscience and what God is trying to do, that's when I'm going to be in trouble. We have to open up ourselves, be susceptible to what the Spirit of God is trying to do inside of us as Christians. I've got to shut things down. We're out of time. In the text, those who had the convicted conscience were lost people. Isn't that interesting? God deals inside of the conscience to bring them to the truth. You know what's sad about this text? These unsaved guys... Instead of saying, Jesus, you're right. And I need to believe in what you're teaching. Instead, I don't care what you say, I'll find another way around it all and stomp away and leave the truth. As an unsaved person, three times I walked away from the truth. I went to church just like this. I'm hearing about Jesus dying and I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I know. I don't know. And then finally, three weeks into it, I'm like, okay. But each time, I walked away in disbelief. Walked right out from the words that I was learning about Jesus Christ. And there was conviction happening inside of me. Matter of fact, the week I got saved, I am literally drenched in tears, streaming down my cheek because of the conviction that the Spirit of God had in my life. And I realize you don't have to cry to be convicted. And I realize it's not emotions. And I understand that. But good night, if God's working inside of you, you can't say, okay, whatever, yeah, I could say, let's, I call it bubblegum Christianity. It's like there's no conviction, there's nothing. It's just like, oh, I'll do it because everybody else is doing it. This is like heaven and hell. This is like, I'm going to heaven now because of this. This is like really important, isn't it?
Have we quenched what God is doing inside of us as Christians? Are you quenching what God is doing inside of you saying, get saved. I want you. I love you. I want to be your father. Just give me. I know you, you, you say, but I don't want to quit my habits and I don't want to quit my drinking. I don't want to quit my drugs. I don't want, you're talking about adultery. I've got three women right now and, and I'm sleeping with and nobody knows about it. And my life is just fine the way it is. But you know God's knocking. He's trying to draw you to holiness. He's trying to draw you to Himself. Conviction. Father, in the quietness of this church today, we pray, Holy Spirit, that You will do the job, as I often say, to bring conviction. Lord, this may be the message that some have needed to finally soften their hearts to You because they know. Lord, as our Savior came not to condemn but to save, Lord, You are coming to save maybe some people here today. And I pray, Lord, You'll work in that heart. But also, Lord, as we had to talk about ourselves as Christians today. Lord, there are times that we turn off what You are trying to do in our lives and conviction. We know what is right. We know what Your Word says. But we choose to do just the opposite. Lord, maybe there are some today that this is preventing them from doing something that they will regret the rest of their lives. Maybe... Maybe it's stopping them now. Bring, Holy Spirit, the conviction that can only come.